Well, this week we follow one of the most spectacular seasons of miracles in all of human history. The ten plagues in Egypt and the crossing of the Red Sea. In fact, they're finding artifacts and discoveries of these events where some people still don't believe it ever happened. It was miraculous. It was life-altering. And um, we think back to all of the effects that that's had as time has gone on. But the biggest challenge for Moses was not so much getting Israel out of Egypt. It was getting Egypt out of Israel, out of their hearts. See, it's one thing to physically relocate a people, but they had been there now for 430 years since Joseph first left and they settled in the land of Goshen. They have slowly adapted to the ways of the Egyptians. Now, we're not picking on the Egyptians, but they basically lived without the God that we know and created their own gods. It was a polytheistic culture. And you don't think it affects you the way that it really does. And I think that happens to us as well, living in this world. As Jesus was praying for his disciples, you are in this world, but you're not of this world. And, and I'm praying not that you would come out of this world, but that the world or worldly systems would come out of you. Our first indication of this problem of getting Egypt out of Israel's hearts is going to happen three days after the main event, the parting of the Red Sea. So this sea parts, two to three million people walk across on dry land. The sea comes back over and destroys the entire Egyptian army. And they head south. They cross at the north part of the Red Sea. They start heading south to the wilderness of Shur, the sure thing. <laughs> and they come to a place called Mara. You heard that in the reading today, Mara. And that's a name they came up with. You'll see it in other places in the Bible. But it means bitter. It means bitter because that's the water that they found there. This morning, what I'd like to do is make four observations from the text that we read, Exodus 15, 23 to 27. And we're going to kind of move through this from triumph to trouble to testing and to teaching. I've titled the message or the theme this morning is Every Bitter Thing Made Sweet. So let's begin with triumph. We'd all like to be there. Uh, it is the mountaintop experience. It is the day of celebration. It is the, the time of high fives. And unfortunately, most days aren't that way. But there are times of great victory and of great celebration. And I think we need to make much of these. But it only took these people three days to start complaining. In Exodus 15, 22, the first part says, Then Moses led Israel on from the Red Sea, and they went out to the wilderness of Shur. So at, over the past year for Israel, they've never seen anything like this. 
They've heard of the burning bush. They've seen authenticating miracles. They've watched 10 plagues decimate a land and the mercy that God showed to them. They saw the parting of the Red Sea, the destruction of the entire Egyptian army, the cloud by day and the pillar by night of God's presence. And all of these things were revelations of God, of himself, to the people that they might come to know him. You read this throughout the Old Testament, that they may know me, that they may know me. Even with the Egyptians, he says, I'm going to perform these miracles on the Egyptians that they may know me. God's greatest desire for us is that we know him in a personal relationship. This is what this book is about. It's about a relationship. And so he shows in each one of these events his presence, his power, his justice, his mercy, and his faithfulness. He is constantly revealing himself in all of these works. And so what did the people do? Finally, they complained for a little bit. They believed. They said, he said, step out. He didn't say wait till it parts. He said, step out. That's what faith does. Uh, faith is believing and then seeing, not seeing and then believing. That's why we struggle with it. Faith is not an easy way to live because it's believing and true belief will act. So if I have faith, if I have faith that God will part this, I'm not waiting till he parts it to start walking. I take that step. That's faith. It's the way that we're saved. It's the way we're redeemed. It's the way we have eternal life. But it's also the way we live every single day. So this creates tension. When God asks us to do something that doesn't make human sense, it does create a tension for us. But they did believe, they stepped out in faith, they walked through the Red Sea on dry ground, and there was a great celebration. So right in the middle of Exodus, chapter 15, you, you find this song. It's called, your, the title in your Bible says, The Song of Moses. This is a, a grand celebration. It's like we get all together, get the music team up here, and we just sing. It says they were dancing, they were praising God, and uh, lifting up their voices and thanksgiving to him. And all through, well, the end of chapter 14, and all through chapter 15 is a celebration. It's a celebration. And three, three days later, they forgot it all. They forgot it all. We do tend to forget what God has done. And that's why you see throughout uh, Israel's development, God is reminding them, teach this to your children. And usually this would, of course, this was in that time oral tradition. So teach this to your children. Put it on your doorpost. Write it on your walls. Talk about it wherever you go. Because if you don't remind them of what God has done and remember what God has done in the past, it's really hard to face the future. I found that one of the most helpful things that I do, and I've shared this with you before, but I think it bears repeating, is that when I go take my walks and I'm struggling with believing something, is just to go through all of the answers to prayer and all the works of God that I've experienced in my life. And I, and I start off with being blessed with great parents. Not every kid 
gets to have that. And I just kind of go through my whole life, and by the, by the end of that time, I'm thinking, you know what? I believe God can handle this small little thing that's before me. But you have to remember, uh, we cannot forget what he has done. We cannot forget what he has said to us, forget what we have witnessed. But I think we're most vulnerable right after success. You know, you, you kind of like, things are going well, it, it's high five. You know, we, we love that. Um, I, I've described this to younger pastors. I've said, you know, the ministry, when you're in the ministry, you'll have some high five days, but they're not every day. <laughs> and a lot of times they're not every week. Um, but when you do have them, spend time enjoying them and give thanks to the Lord. But what happens is when, when we have great success and we're kind of feeling good about ourselves and how we've done, we let our guard down. Faith creates tension and drives us to the scripture to get our heads straight. You know what I'm saying? When you know you have a bad way of thinking, you know you need to get your head straight and you do that through the scripture, through truth, absolute truth. And as I say many times, you, you need to talk yourself back to reality and argue in front of the mirror sometimes, telling yourself what you know to be true about God, what you know to be true about what he has promised, because you're not feeling that way. So it takes away that tension. The scripture in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Paul says this, he says, wherefore, whoever thinks he stands, he should take heed lest he falls. You know, it's like when you say, um, you know, I'm doing, I'm doing great. I'm, do, I'm, do, I'm doing fine. I'm just, be careful. It's like uh, skiing or snowboarding. Now, if you've, you've, I know that you've had this, if you're a skier or a snowboarder, you've had this experience and you only need to have it once. But when you're skiing down a really tough mountain, you get down to, like when we go up to Keystone, we're skiing down the hole from the top of the gondola all the way down, racing down, and you get to River Run, the last part, and your legs start shaking. They just, they just start shaking. But you're not gonna quit because you got other people you're skiing with. And it just start burning and burning. And uh, you're gonna make it down to the end. Well, at, at that one, you get to, to stop. But, at other places that I've gone, you get all the way down to the worst part of it, and then you just have flat skiing for about a mile. And here's what happens. You go, ah. Oh. <laughs> and you just relax, and your skis or, or your snowboard is floating on top of the, the snow or ice by that time of the day, and um, you're not holding an edge. And so if you don't hold an edge, you'll catch an edge. And when you catch an edge, it's, it's, you're not ready for it, it's not predictable, and your body will go in a hundred different directions, and there'll be a yard sale of all this stuff. <laughs> now, you only need to have this happen once in your life. But I've seen it happen so many times, I've said, don't relax, you've got to keep an edge. So keeping the edge in the Christian life is conscious, a conscious focus on what is true and what is right. And you have intentionally hold an edge. You can't just not have an edge because you'll catch an edge. 
We need to be careful when pressures let up, the times of celebration, to remember we are still in a warfare. We are in a spiritual warfare. Yes, the Egyptian army may have just drowned in the sea, but Satan still wants to destroy your life. And this is what he is doing. Not from the external pressures, but the internal ones. So we move from triumph to trouble. <laughs> it's the way it goes because it's going to happen. And it happens to all of us. In Exodus 15, 22, second part, it says they journeyed for three days in the wilderness without finding water. They came to Marah, but they could not drink the water at Marah because it was bitter. That is why his name was named Mara. So the people grumbled to Moses. What are we going to drink? So Moses, he, Moses, cried to the Lord. What sets us up for disappointment? This last week, we all experienced disappointment. But you look back farther than this last week, there have been significant times of major disappointment in your life. And it happens because we have expectations. Every day you get up with expectations. And we live expecting certain things and when, when the reality, there's a gap between what we expected and what really happened, that gap is the occasion for us to become disillusioned, discouraged, troubled, and so forth. Taking a trip. You're going to go to vacation. You're going to go to Disneyland. You're going to go to the beach. You're going to go to another country. You have a certain set of expectations, don't you? Now, how many times do you go on a trip and I'll tell you what. Everything exceeded all expectations. <laughs> well, if that happens, tell me where you went. But typically not because our, our expectations are so high, it's almost impossible for us to meet them. Sometimes that will happen. But these people had basic expectations, like there would be water along the way, and it would be drinkable. It had been three days, and so they're thinking every day more about water. I'm sure they had some water in supply, but with all these many people, um, there's not going to be enough water, and as we all know, you can't live without water. So they're saying four days you can go without water. They're at the third day. So now this, this was true for everyone, okay? Every child, every mom, every dad, every spiritual person, every unspiritual person. Moses himself had expectations of water. So it's no different. And I believe this, that disappointment was across the board. Expectations are not met. So everyone is feeling the same. The trouble. So, and it's like us in our lives, we have certain trouble that will keep us up at night, be on our minds during the day, and if this isn't resolved properly, 
when expectations are not met and when our desires are not met, it can lead us into a downward spiral. That is exactly what Satan wants to do. Now, he may not be able to destroy you from the outside in with the Egyptian army, but he can destroy you from the inside out with your own bitterness. It's how you respond. Because we're going to see two different responses, one by the people in general and one by Moses. Both were thirsty. Okay, both had expectations of water. So how is bitterness formed? We, we talked about, they, they named this place Mara. Bitter water, it's bitter. Remember the story in, in the book of Ruth about Naomi? She said, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Well, you can tell what her attitude was. <laughs> and she said, the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. She was going to blame God on it. So, how is bitterness formed? Well, something happens or doesn't happen to you. Now, I'm, I'm, let's try and bring this here personally because I want to ask you what your Mara is because you're all going to come to Mara. And so we, we think about a disappointment, an unfulfilled expectation, an injury, a hurt, a betrayal, a loss, or an injustice. And it just, it just makes us upset. It's just not right. And it bugs you. And it eats at you. And it begins to destroy you. You dwell on it. You can't shake it. It keeps you up at night. You play it over and over in your head. What happened? What should have happened? What needs to happen? And what does it do to you? What does it do to you? It robs you of your joy, your peace. It makes you cynical and angry. It slowly destroys your life from the inside out. Someone once said it's the poison that you drink, hoping someone else will die. It eventually destroys those around you. So it's not just destroy self-destruction, it begins to destroy those around you, everyone around you, but particularly those that you love the most. It's just terrible with bitterness. And I think that every single person here, I know this, it's got to be true. We've struggled at times with an unfulfilled expectation, a disappointment, a hurt, an injustice, a betrayal that has really been hard for us to process. So Diane and I moved out here and uh, lived in an apartment in Broomfield and finally got into our own home. It was a, we didn't own it, but it was a church parsonage and we first started our church. And so the first thing that I did, we got into that house, uh, planted a garden, bought a pickup. I got a 68 Ford pickup. Don't you wish you would have kept a lot of the things you used to have? But... <clears throat> and I got a dog. I got a dog. German Shepherd, of course, his name is going to be Kaiser. And uh, we'd have experience with German Shepherds 
you know, when I was a kid. And I, and I love dogs, but particularly German Shepherds because they're just really smart and you can train them and a great companion. So I take Kaiser, we get in my pickup and we'd go fishing. You know, this before kids. I had a little more free time at the time. <laughs> some, of you, some of you would have kids thinking, how do you ever do that? Well, my pickup, my dog, fishing pole, and, and I started training him. And um, I was going door to door in Arvada at the time and, and knocked on the door of a guy who was a Christian and away from the Lord. Uh, it was a police officer for Arvada and, uh, named Dan Perry. And uh, Dan started meeting with him. He was a canine officer for the uh, Arvada Police Department. So we just get together every week and work our dogs. And so we go through all the obstacle courses, the tracking and, the, and that sort of thing. Um, and so um, I'd paid quite a bit of money at that time for this dog, put a lot of investment of time and energy, and I enjoyed it in training the dog. And, and as we started having kids, he was just great with the kids. I mean, friendly dog, unless you were a bad person. But if, if, if you're just like hanging around our family coming by, and um, just, just a great dog. Well, he got sick, and I took him to the vet. And the vet said, well, he's got uh, an infected spleen, and we need to remove the spleen. Well, I'm thinking, man, I'm going to put the dog through surgery. One, that's all. You guys have had battles with this with your animals. And I'm thinking, but that's, that, I love this dog. I said, I'm going to do what we need to do. So I'm, at that time, paid a lot of money to have the spleen removed. And Kaiser just got sicker and sicker and sicker. And I, I thought, I don't think that's it. So I took him to another vet was recommended to me, and they found out that he had ingested a uh, piece of grass or something in his lung and it infected his entire uh, lungs. And, but by that time, he was um, so sick that we, we, we needed to put him down. So I still remember that. Um, being there with him when he takes his last breath. And I know it's a dog. I know it's a dog. I know that. But God loves dogs. And um, he loves all that he's created. And I just, I just go home devastated. I told Diane, we both started crying. You know, you guys have been through these types of things. But then I think, that doctor, and then I get a bill from the doctor for this surgery that he took the spleen out that was wrong, misdiagnosis. And it just made me so angry. Um, and I thought, this is just not right. Now, if you were to say, you know what, I'm, I apologize, I'm not going to charge you, I'd say, you know what, those things happen. But he, he wanted all of his money. And I said, I don't think that's right, blah, blah, blah. You can see how this goes. And one, the conversation ended with him saying, Mr. Olson, I'll see you in court. <laughs> and so here's, here's what my week started looking like. Every free moment, I pull out a yellow pad and I tell the story. I write it all out, line by line, what happened. About the value of the dog. This, and, and I was getting ready to go to court. I had talked to a lawyer. And, but you know what? I couldn't sleep at night. I was so upset. This, this was not right. It's, it's unjust. And I told Diane, <clears throat> I said, you know, this, this thing is just, it's, it's, well, she could see it. She, I think she mentioned it first. This thing's eating you up. I said, yeah, it's just, but it needs to be made right. It needs to be made right. And uh, 
So anyway, um, I went through this for several weeks, and I could see what it was ha was happening. It was killing me. It was it was destroying me. Um, I, I couldn't prepare to preach a sermon. I couldn't have my quiet time. I had a hard time praying without being angry. And then my family, they're starting to feel dad's kind of cranky <laughs> about this stuff. <clears throat> and um, I think I finally decided to let it go. I think we negotiated a partial payment and he was happy with it. And um, I didn't get my dog back. Um, did get another one, got another dog. But, um, and I realized too of how Satan has his ways to destroy us. Now that, that story, um, I know it's like, it's a dog, it's not a big deal. There have been other stories that I won't tell you because they're probably more personal, private, and more, not you don't share, that have been much more serious than this of times of disappointment, heartache, betrayal, so forth. But the same thing can happen if you're not careful. So this is what happened to Israel. They, they became bitter. They called the water bitter. They named the place bitter, and they became bitter, and it was destroying them. And what it does to you, it takes you farther away from realizing your expectations, farther away from the people you love, farther away from the purpose for which you were created, and farther away from God. So Moses had the same trouble, same thirst, same need of water, same expectation, different response. What were the two responses? Israel, it says, grumbled and complained. Moses' disappointment, it says, was expressed. It says, he cried out to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord. Now, he did cry out. In fact, when you read the psalm, sometimes you see David complaining to the Lord. I don't think it's wrong to have those kind of conversations with God. But here's the difference. Moses went up. People went out. They weren't, they weren't functioning in the same way. Moses immediately goes to God. So this is why we describe him as the man who knew God face to face because same cancers, same sicknesses, same car accidents, same betrayals, same bankruptcies, same houses burning down. You know when, that, when the fire went through Louisville? It, it said, are you a Christian or are you not a Christian? <sighs> Something like that can destroy you with bitterness or it can lead you to worship. And it's how we're going to respond. So when I ask you, what has been your Mara? What has been your trouble? What for you has kept you up at night? What eats at you? And what has been your response to it? So we move from triumph to trouble to testing. Now, I don't like that word. I know no one that goes to school, unless you're kind of sick, like, unless you get, get straight A's on everything, like testing. 
But it says in verse 25, second part, the Lord made a statute and ordinance for them at Marah, and he tested them there. And he tested them there. He is addressing the bitterness in their lives. He is calling them to faith, and he is testing them. You see, without a test, whether it's a driving test or your Algebra 2 test, I don't think most of us like being tested. But God tests his people. Because without testing, we never know the things we need to know. You never really know it. You may think you know it. We have a men's group, um, Bible study accountability group. And um, so we'll share personal things, prayer requests, hold each other, what I call supporting accountability, study God's word together and so forth. And we'll share things that are, we're going through. So I'm going to share one of our guys' stories. I asked his permission, just so you know, I don't tell stories on people. Uh, but this is from Scott. Scott's not here today. He's flying. Um, he's a pilot for Southwest. And so he mentioned to the guys in our group, he said, well, pray for me. I've got my check ride coming up. So every year around November, Scott gets checked out. And it's basically, if you don't pass, you don't keep your job, um, which would kind of make you a little bit nervous, wouldn't it? So they'll, they'll have the date set. Uh, I think it's like a three days of check ride. And he'll be, I think it's mostly in a simulator. And so he'll get into the simulator. And he, you've seen the inside of a cockpit, haven't you? Of all those buttons and switches. Now you put that against every possible scenario you could face in the air. Birds flying into the engine, thunderstorms, crazy passengers. I mean, and, and they, during that testing, will throw all, not every one of those scenarios, but all kinds of different scenarios. Now, I would, I would think it would be kind of fun to be the person doing the testing, you know. <laughs> let's, see, let's see how they do here. <clears throat> and um, Scott's a good pilot. I mean, I feel just knowing him, I think, you know, and he's, the last few years we've prayed about this, he's passed his test. But it does create a level of tension. And, and so maybe the easy solution would be that Southwest no longer tests their pilots every year. <laughs> How many of you would like that? <laughs> and I don't think Scott would like that. I think part of it is, yeah, it's kind of a stressor, but it's, but it's the kind of stressor that makes you better. It makes you stronger, makes you more alert, more competent, more capable, better prepared. That's what God's doing here. The testing is to help you grow and develop and be ready for the times like this when you come tomorrow. And this is a thing that we can embrace if we understand it. So you have two different things going on, at least, in your trouble at Mara. You have Satan, and we've talked about Satan and using the Pharaoh and all that. Satan will take the same trouble and want to use it to destroy your life. 
I mean, he, he don't, don't ever underestimate him. Satan wants to destroy your life, and he will look at every possible way to try to do that. We call that temptation. God does not tempt. God tests. God will take the exact same circumstance, and he will want to test you to make you stronger and more capable. So, very different agenda. Now, so that's why when we look at the place at Mara, here you got all the Israelites standing over here, Moses is standing here. Their response is grumbling, complaining, anger, blaming Moses. Eventually, you, bitterness will always take you to blame God. That's where it ends up. You go and blame God. And it destroys you, everyone around you. And it's just, it's just crippling them. Moses, on the other hand, feeling the same thirst, feeling the same pain, and probably in many times expressing to God the same frustration. Lord, I don't understand. I don't, this doesn't make sense. The way David would pray, I, I don't know what you're doing, but I will trust you. I will trust you. And I'm calling to you. So really, the direction of our lives is going to follow how we respond to these times. Moving Egypt out of their lives. But before he can start getting Egypt out of their hearts, he has to identify what Egypt is like. So I would describe this. After 430 years, their view of life, or we call this worldview. Have you used that term before, worldview? Their, their worldview does not include God. Now, on the Sabbath, they probably, you know, or from time to time would worship. They didn't have a um, set of laws and things like that, but, but they viewed their life without God, functionally. I call this a functional atheism. You can, you can on Sunday, make all the confessions of the faith with your mouth. I believe this whole book, but then be a functional atheist from Monday through Saturday because you live without any thought of God. That's where they were. They're living life their own way, pursuing their own pleasures, writing and living their own, by their own rules, healing their own diseases, trying to, working out their own miracles if they could, fulfilling their own destiny, creating their own happiness, and worshiping and serving their own